Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team behind the environmental policy magazine, The End Report. In this episode, we'll take a look at whether Zach Goldsmith's criticism of Rishi Sunak's green credentials rings true, we'll look at what temporal waters troubles signal for the water sector, and is it rule over now that the retained EU law bill has cleared the commons? I'm sorry about that one. Then, in this episode's deep dive, we'll catch up with Sean Sutherland, the co-founder of A Plastic Planet, to hear the latest on attempts to put in place a global treaty to regulate plastics. So, without further ado, let's enter the eco <laughs> so I, I take no responsibility for that. That was the podcast producer said it's got to have more energy and <laughs> lean into the eco chamber. So I'm just following instructions. Yeah. I feel the energy in the room. <laughs> I'm tired after that now. <laughs> I'm Jamie Carpenter and I'm here with news editor Pippa Neal and features editor Tess Colley. We have a really interesting big green news section for you this week with tales of not one, but two shock resignations, financial meltdown and parliamentary intrigue. But before we move on to all of that, I thought we could quickly chat about last week's episode of the Eco Chamber. We had a very special guest on the podcast, John Curtin, who is Interim Chief Executive of the Environment Agency, and Shosha, who interviewed him, covered a lot of ground in a, in a wide-ranging interview. Um, Tess, I wonder what you took away from the interview. There's quite a lot that went... We talked about yeah no it was it's very wide ranging i think that in itself how um keen and and happy he was to talk about well about about what what the environment agency does and that sounds fairly basic i suppose but it's not always the case that you get chief executives who are prepared to talk quite so uh, openly uh, about about the work but i particularly thought what he said about farmers was quite interesting and the way that he he was kind of pushing the idea that, you know, it's maybe better in the first place to try and work with farmers rather than prosecute or, you know, carrot rather than stick or carrot first, at least uh, for a long time rather than stick, which is, you know, fairly not everyone agrees with that. You know, we have rules in place to enforce certain rules uh, for how farmers should farm. And um, he's saying, well, no, let's not let's not do that straight away. Uh, that caught my attention. Pippa? Yeah, I thought it was interesting what he said about Labour's proposals to potentially merge um, Ofwat and the Environment Agency. Um, I know this has been kind of controversial with people having different opinions over whether this is, you know, this is would solve all of our sewage problems. Um, but he actually said this would be a retro step because having a separate agency to deal with flooding would increase bureaucracy. And he said that the EA's kind of integrated approach is part of its beauty. So yeah, I thought it was, um, <laughs> um, I did think it's quite interesting. And like, yeah, the, the prospect of would having a separate agency just focus on flooding be a good, would that be a good thing um, is an mm. interesting point to make. Yeah, I guess beauty is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? So, <laughs> so, yeah. What did I, you think, Jamie? I thought what um, what John Curtin said around toxicity in the, in the debate was interesting. So that that was something that he he said in the interview with Shosha, but also in a select committee meeting. And he he gave the example of a a water company employee who was spat at. And and I think there's definitely kind of is 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 the case that there's there's things have become very reheated and I, I know there are some MPs as well who who felt sort of threatened because of how how much public anger there is around this stuff so I think I think there's I think that's a, a fair point to get across and and there, there are a lot of people who work for water companies 
who care about the environment and are trying to to make things better. And it's not just about the the chief execs and their bonuses and the dividends flying to the Cayman Islands. It's um, <laughs> I think the, the situation is more more nuanced than that. But um, if you'd like to find out more about the John Curtin interview, you can listen to the previous podcast. Or better still, you can check out our website where you can get hold of an extended recording and, and read an in-depth write-up of what, what John Curtin said. Moving on now to the Big Green News section proper. And for our first story, we've got, um, we've got a Zach attack. So this is, um, this is Zach Goldsmith's resignation last week as International Environment Minister. And um, if you've not read it, his resignation note is pretty spectacular. He said that the government's apathy in the face of the greatest challenge we face makes continuing in my role untenable. Um, he also said, our efforts on a wide range of domestic environmental issues have simply ground to a standstill. And it also got quite personal with uh, Rishi. The problem is not that the government is hostile to the environment. It is that you, our Prime Minister, are simply uninterested. <laughs> which is pretty, uh, pretty mm. bitter, really. Bridges uh, burnt. Bridges burnt there, yeah. Um, so we, we uh, I suppose we know that there's there's bad blood between Sack and Rishi, um, and there, there's there's some suggestion that the Prime Minister's response to Zach Goldsmith's resignation has been that um, to claim that Zach resigned when he was told that he would have to apologise for his role in the, in a campaign to undermine the Privileges Committee. Um, so there's there's probably a, a bit that's going on behind the scenes that we don't know about, but. Um, but the criticism, though, is kind of interesting. Do you think it rings true, Tess? Um, yeah, I mean, whether or not other factors influenced his decision to design at this very moment. Um, I think these comments in general, particularly about having the UK have withdrawn leadership on, on climate and nature, do do kind of match what we've seen since Sunak became Prime Minister. Just some, like, take some real headline stuff, like he did not attend the big biodiversity summit in Montreal in December. Um, that was a deep disappointment to a, a lot of people who work in that that kind of that area. Um, he did attend COP27, the most recent climate summit, but only just about, because I think it was mm. at the very last minute, it seemed to kind of be a last minute U-turn after a slew of bad press, of like how could he not attend after all these commitments we've made? And I think he was there very, not for very long um, and you know, more recently, the government has absolutely refused to compromise after repeated calls for uh, the retained DU Law Act to contain a non-environmental non-regression clause. Um, and Goldsmith himself was a great proponent of the Kept Animals Bill, which was about animal welfare and exports, and that has been scrapped. And that was something he really, I think, during the um, the kind of the Conservative um, leadership campaign, that was something that. That that well, Zach Zach said this. These are these are things all going to continue. Um, so yeah, it, it does ring true. Though, of course, you have to remember that Zach Goldsmith has been in the government for quite a long time. So if he's attacking the government for not doing stuff on these things, he has been there. But of course, he's he's attacking. He's going right to the top with this. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and the, the the timing of it was quite interesting because it came very soon after the Climate Change Committee's most recent report, which. It seemed to contain kind of very similar message in some ways to what was in in Zach Goldsmith's resignation note. Um, tell us a bit more, Pippa, about what the report said. Yeah, so the line, the kind of the top line in the report is that the UK has lost its clear global leadership position on climate action. So, yeah, pretty similar to what um, Zach was saying in his letter. 
Um, and the report highlights specifically that the UK is no longer COP president, no longer a member of the EU negotiating bloc, that its response to the recent energy crisis did not embrace the steps it could have done to kind of grow renewable energy, that the UK has backtracked on fossil fuel commitments with the consenting of a new coal mine and support for new oil and gas. And it also says that the UK has been slow to react to the US Inflation Reduction Act and the EU's proposed Green Deal industrial plan. So it lists, you know, quite a few examples there where, you know, kind of expanding on what you said, Tess, where there is just this this sense of yeah, mm. it's, it's not top of the priority list is mm. it um and it's always competing priorities i suppose in government but the environment and nature does seem to have repeatedly found itself nowhere near the top mm. in the last month yeah. few months there seems to be this this um this thing now where commentators are saying that the government or the conservatives are trying to create a, a wedge issue with, with labor on on net zero so you mm. see grant chaps who supposedly Net Zero Secretary has said nothing about Net Zero, but keeps saying that Labour are in the pockets of Just Stop Oil. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, interesting times. The closer we get to the general election, it's the more, mm. you know, things will move away from policy into politics. Yeah, absolutely. So we move on now to another resignation. So this is um, a major story from last week was related to the financial trouble at Thames Water, which is the country's biggest water company i think serving 15 million people um so the, the first first thing we heard was that um sarah bentley the, the the chief executive she she suddenly stepped down at the beginning of last week and then after that kind of all, all hell broke loose so we had um fears emerging over the financial health of the company and the government sort of having to respond um to that and there's there's, there's been an uh, there's been a lot written about that a lot discussed but i think i think one of the interesting things that that what's happened has done is is kind of reopen this debate around renationalisation of the water companies, and there's 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 clearly a lot of anger around water companies handing out massive profits to to overseas investors, and and at the same time you've got billions of litres leaking out of pipes, and you've got rivers and seas polluted with sewage, and rivers being over abstracted. So there's this kind of growing growing amount of public dissatisfaction and, and anger around this stuff. Um, and, and the, the Liberal Democrats came up with their answer to this problem, which is transforming the, the firms into what they're describing as public good companies. How, how would that work, Tess? Yeah, so this is a, a new parliamentary bill that the Lib Dems have tabled, um, which they say would reform water company boards and priorities. And under these plans, water firms would, and I quote, no longer prioritise profit over the environment, according to the party. Um, this would mean companies' boards being reformed to include environmental experts and the companies being obliged to become far more open and transparent to the public. One example Lib Dems have given is, you know, currently how water firms can refuse to answer environmental requests for information um, from the public. I, I guess the implication is that they, they'd make it obligatory if it's not actually written in the stuff they put out. Um but the Lib, yeah, the Lib Dems have been very vocal about their plans to make the sewage scandal a key campaign point uh, for them in the next election. So I guess this, this is a, this is a development on that theme. Yeah, we we'll expect to see a lot more of that in the in the next twelve months or so. Um, the, another interesting development was that um, the Evening Standard, I think, they they got hold of a, an email from Liv Garfield, who is the boss of Seven Trent Water, which was smart, sensitive and highly confidential and someone clearly didn't get the memo or didn't, didn't uh, see those bits 
um, and and her her message seems to be seems to be like an, an attempt to bring a task force together, utility bosses, and and along with Labour Party to to head off the threat of nationalisation. Um, and and Liv Garfield thinks that one thing that might appeal to the Labour Party is the idea of repurposing water companies and and, and utilities into a new breed of what she's calling social purpose companies. So um, public good or social purpose kind of similar <laughs> thing. But, but can you tell us a bit more about that idea, Pippa? Yeah. So in her email, she said that key point being that the water companies would still remain privately owned and that they can absolutely and should make a profit, but also that they would have a special duty to take a long-term view. Um, and the proposals included a provision of social tariffs for vulnerable customers um, a strong voice for employees in strategic decision making, and a key point that the companies have to make a positive contribution to the environment. Um, her email um, also apparently included an imagined press statement about what what the end product could look like, and this was titled "Labor to Reset How Utility Companies Operate to Ensure World Class Public Services in the UK." <laughs> Things, oh, yeah, so it's quite <laughs> quite sort of vague at the moment, but yeah, it seems seems interesting. It does just seem that's what water companies should be doing though, yeah. isn't it? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'm being naive. I think my, my takeaway from that is never to write an email marked sensitive and highly confidential. <laughs> no, yeah. But yeah, definitely definitely kind of seems like that's the the whole issue is not gonna go away any any time soon. So you've got Lib Dems with their campaigning on this, we've seen it already and um Labour as well. Yeah. Labour as well. Mm-hmm. People even offering to write Labour Party press office press, press releases, so it's um, helpful. Um, so um, our, our last story now is to do with retain EU law. Um, we talked a lot about that on the podcast over the last few weeks. So I think some might say, no more, please no more. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, no, um, no. That, that could be about to change anyway, because the retain EU law bill or the rule bill as as we affectionately know it by, finally got royal assent last week. Is it really rule over, Tess? <laughs> oh, I'm going to leave now. Like. <laughs> um, well, some say it's only just begun. So yes, the rule bill became the rule act last week. So the this act towards what many campaigners, lawyers, uh, politicians, mostly opposition politicians, see as sweeping powers to the government to to scrap or change EU derived laws uh, for the next three years. So no, it's certainly not the end of uh, the re- retained EU law drama. Unfortunately for our listeners, um, yeah, this is uh, yeah three three years now until we can finally stop. I'm afraid. Wow. Three more years. One of the reasons why it went on for such a long time was that there was this interminable mm. parliamentary ping pong between yeah. MPs and peers. And did, did, did the, the, the Lords seem to hold out for quite a long time, but did they actually win any concessions? No, in the yeah, they, they held out. But in, in, in the end, the wrangling over the bill came down to whether uh, or not the government would insert this environmental non-regression clause I mentioned a bit earlier um, and also take measures measures to strengthen the, the parliamentary scrutiny process uh, afforded um, by the bill. Um, peers put those amendments before MPs three times, so they sent it back three times, that means, but each to no avail with absolutely no concession. Uh, what the government has done is make sort of multiple on record, you know, at the dispatch box, assurances that it has no intention of degrading environmental protections. 
Uh, it will be following the environmental principles, which will be mandatory from November. It will consult on all significant reforms, of course, and seek independent expert advice. Those were the things most people wanted on, on the bill itself in legislation. Um, obviously, that's not what happened. But those will be the things to watch, the things that the government refused to, to put into legislation, despite saying really that, saying it's what they, of course, they're going to do, but wouldn't actually have it written down on the bill. Yeah. Say, say anything, can't you? I think I saw, I saw. I think Bloomberg covered a story about um, some sort of briefing that suggested that um, they might amend the Leveling Up Bill to to get rid of the neutrality yeah. rules. So, mm. so it doesn't. On the one hand, you're saying we're not going to have any non-aggression, and then got some plotting going on with, with number ten. So. Yes, I know. More, more Rishi, not not um, <laughs> simply not caring. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so your words, test not mine. <laughs> um, Pippa, you were at the um, UKLA, UK Environmental Law Conference at the, the weekend, and, and there was a session there where the heads of the post-Brexit environmental watchdog, so that's the Office for Environmental Protection covering England and Northern Ireland. We had Environmental Standards Scotland and the Interim Assessor from Wales. They, they, they had some stuff to say on rule. Um, what, what was their message? So again, the message from them was that this, just because the bill has now become an act, the kind of conversation is far, far from over. Neris Llewellyn-Jones, who's the Interim Environmental Protection Assessor for Wales, said this explicitly and said the work doesn't stop and it's important to monitor progress very closely. Um, And I actually asked the panel specifically about the National Emission Ceilings Regulations, a part of which is included in the 600 laws that will expire at the end of the year, which um, campaigners and lawyers have kind of raised concerns over. Um, And I asked, you know, is this on on the panel's radar? And Natalie Prosser from the Office for Environmental Protection said they are concerned about this and said they'll be watching to see if it creates a gap in protection um, and that this will be included in its next monitoring report. Um, and Mark Roberts from Environmental Standards Scotland also said, you know, they, it was very much on their radar and that they'll be kind of looking closely. So I think, yeah, it, we're definitely, well, it, from the sounds sounds of those conversations, it seems like there's going to be more from the watchdogs watching what happens now that, you know, the government mm. has these provisions. It's really going to get going. <laughs> but what is rule over is this uh, episode of the Bigger News section. <laughs> so thank you to Pippa and Tess. And uh, now, thankfully, it's time for our deep dive. Um, over to you, Pippa. I'm Pippa Neal, and I'm joined today by Sean Sutherland, co-founder of A Plastic Planet, a campaign group focused on ending our global reliance on plastic. In February last year, a historic UN resolution was adopted to develop an international legally binding treaty on plastic pollution, with the ambition to complete the negotiations by the end of 2024. The Plastic Planet is a founding partner and steward to the Ocean Plastics Leadership Network, which is working with DEFRA and other businesses and campaign groups to provide views for the negotiations on how businesses can help to end plastic pollution. To begin with, can you start by explaining what the treaty is and what your wish lists are versus what you think the reality is? Definitely. Uh, For us, I think the treaty is really a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. We all know, or many people will know already, about the Paris Agreement and just how symbolic that was of all these member state countries of the UN coming together to agree to try and restrict this huge growth in greenhouse gas emissions and the impact that we all know about and we're still seeing. 
One of the great things is that, that that treaty was put in place. However, one of the problems with the Paris Agreement is it is voluntary. So what's exciting for us about the Global Plastics Treaty that is being negotiated right now is well, twofold, really. One is it's happening in record speed. It took over five years to get the Paris Agreement in place. The negotiations for the Global Plastics Treaty are taking place in two years. So it's very ambitious on speed. But the second thing that is very significant is it's legally binding. So every member state of the United Nations, the 190 countries that have come together to create this historic global plastics treaty, know that whatever the result of this treaty is, it will be legally binding that every member state has to concur with the treaty. So that's an extraordinary moment in history, really, of, of human beings collaborating to try and combat one of the worst man-made crises that we've ever witnessed. Mm. The negotiations are ongoing in terms of what the treaty is actually going to look like. But as a campaign group, what, what are you hoping for or pushing for in the negotiations? There are five separate sessions that take place. They're called the INCs. And th these take place, you know, like roughly every six months in, in different member state countries. Um, so the first one was in Uruguay in November. And that really started to establish what is the framework of the treaty? What are the things that really should be included for us as an organization focused solely on protecting the health of future generations and trying to ignite and inspire the world to turn off the plastic tap to do that? It was really exciting for us that for, for once they were going to be looking at it being legally binding, but also that they would look at the full life cycle of plastic, not just this convenient little bit of a plastic life cycle that industry tend to look at. And it would also address plastic impact on human health. So that was that uh, was put to bed, really, and all agreed in the Uruguay session in November. And then the one that we have just had recently in February this year, uh, INC2 was in Paris. And that was the one where uh, the most historic thing happened at that event. And I have to tell you, oh my God, it's a tortuous process. Uh, I went to the INC in Paris. We launched the Plastic Health Council there, which is a plastic planet and the Plastic Health, uh, the Plastic Soup Foundation. So the Plastic Soup Foundation led by Maria Vesterbos. Um, we have come together to create this new Plastic Health Council. And so we were there in Paris to launch this health council to ensure that the scientists, that the scientific proof of which there are thousands of peer-reviewed research papers already, that that proof was on the table, front of mind for every negotiator. But to actually sit in that auditorium, you know, the infamous United Nations auditoriums with 190 member states with all their country names in front of them, and then the stage where you've got the chair and you've got his legal counsel, and you're there really as an observer. But to see how that process happens is fascinating. And to be honest, to also witness the very um, overt maneuvers by the fossil fuel, the oil producing countries to delay the entire process. There are three more sessions and they will be taking place up until the end of 2024. Um, but the biggest thing that happened in Paris was any normal UN treaty has to have absolute 100% sign up by every member state. If one country dissents, then nothing will move forward. And as you can imagine, when you've got something as contentious as oil producing countries, the global south, 
the rich West, you know, everybody has a different agenda around plastic. Um, so one of the most important things that came out of the, of the five-day negotiating session was that it was agreed that we didn't need to have, for this treaty, we didn't need to have 100% consensus. That the, that clause, it's called you know, Clause um, 38, that that will be bracketed. And that means that only 75% of member states need to agree on the content and the treaty overall. So this is a massive move forward because this means that unlike any other treaty process, you cannot have one member state throwing the whole thing into disarray so that nothing happens on this treaty process. So even though it's a kind of tortuous process to sit and witness, and you do sit there scratching your head thinking, is this really how global politics works at this excruciating snail's pace? But it is diplomacy at work where every member state is given the opportunity to speak. Uh, but it's exciting to see that Things are really moving forward. And the next six months, they will actually be writing the narrative of the treaty itself. So we will be back with the Plastic Health Council, bringing the scientists with us in Nairobi in November this year to ensure that this impact, this irrefutable impact of the chemicals within plastic that is so omnipresent in our lives. Look where we are now, the microphone I'm speaking into, the carpet, the paint on the walls, everything, you know, half of the clothes that we're wearing, everything in our lives is dependent on plastic now. And it is not a healthy material, definitely not for next generation. So it's really important that we ensure that the treaty process, this tiny little window of opportunity that we have, that the science is heard so that we do have a treaty with teeth, a treaty that really has the far-reaching impact that we need. Okay. And you obviously explained there that this would be a legally binding treaty. So what does that actually mean for kind of policymakers in the UK? So we obviously already have targets around reducing waste, but you know, could we see a new set of targets relating to plastic production and things like that? You know, what, what can we expect? Most member states, certainly the, the progressive sensible ones, are already thinking about what is their national action plan for this treaty? Because it's going to come very, very fast. It's, what, 18 months away. Business is not ready. Governments need to step in, show leadership and create the national action plan of what regulation, what fiscal policy, what are they going to do? So definitely, of course, within the UK, and every other member state, what are they going to do to create the framework so that business can adapt very quickly? And DEFRA in the UK um, have already been very progressive on that. So we have already held with Ocean, you mentioned before, OPLN, Ocean Plastic Leadership Network, that we are the UK lead for. We've already held two global plastic dialogues specific to the UK, which are inviting all the stakeholders, that's from the petrochemical industry, all the way through to Greenpeace and all the big users of plastic in the middle. We want to make sure that everybody has a voice so that DEFRA can go to the negotiating table through this INC process and they know what the voice of the UK is and help them frame the negotiating position for the UK, which is significant because we're a tiny island, but let me tell you, we are a massive user of plastic. Per capita, the UK produces more plastic waste than any other country in the world other than the US. 
Really? Yeah. Wow. When we talk about what we do with our plastic waste, we still export over 60% of it. Mm. So we are also, I think the US, just pip us to the post on that one, one of the biggest exporters of plastic waste. So where do we send it? I mean, for me, this is the worst of waste imperialism. Most of the time, either directly or indirectly, we are sending it to countries that have no significant waste management infrastructure themselves. So we're offshoring our guilt. We're not dealing with our own dirt. And I think that part of the national action plan will have to be, if we choose to use plastic in the UK, we have to deal with it. It's second, third, fourth, forever life. Mm -hmm. We have to deal with it in the UK. I think that's interesting because obviously we're talking about, you know, highly ambitious targets that could mean like a, a huge overhaul of how we deal with recycling infrastructure and everything, circular economy in the UK. Um, but I was just going to ask you, like, it feels at the moment that we're seeing kind of um, maybe cold feet around some of our policy around waste in the UK. So there's obviously been, which we've talked about on the eco chamber before, but everything going on between Scotland and England and Westminster with the deposit return scheme. Um, and I wrote a story recently, which kind of suggested that Rishi Sunak could actually be looking to go back on plans for extended producer responsibility, which is an attempt to put the cost of recycling products back on the producer of the of the waste. So, you know, do you think we can like what are the stumbling blocks in in the UK in kind of achieving these these kind of highly ambitious treaties? We've got to remember who we're up against here. When you're fighting plastic, you're fighting fossil fuels. And plastic is plan B. With whether it's polyester or PET, it's plan B for the fossil fuel industry. And the fossil fuel industry have had decades of incredibly effective lobbying. It is the most subsidized industry in the world. Therefore, plastic is the most subsidized material in the world. So we're up against this, the big machine of decades of skill building of lobbying governments in whatever ways that they do from the fossil fuel industry. And for any government to push back against the fossil fuel industry needs a lot of guts. So we need strong leaders right now. And I fear, exactly as you have pointed out, the delaying, the postponement, the constipation consultations that we all endure, when it's actually quite common sense to see where we are and where we need to get to. And we have to look at recycling. Let's just take that as one point. We currently recycle 9% of our plastic in the UK. We burn a huge amount of it and we export a huge amount of it. So 9%, imagine if some radical thing happened and we had huge investment in the recycling industry and we doubled recycling to 18%. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it is not going to ignite anybody, is it? It's not going to make us think that that's the solution. And yet still, we focus on recycling. It's the first thing that people talk about. Whenever, whenever I talk to people about, oh, you know, I'm in the business of trying to slow down the, the misuse of plastic. And everybody will always say, oh, yeah, we've got to recycle more. Said, we really don't. We've got to stop thinking that recycling plastic is the answer because all it does is delay real change. And you don't recycle plastic, you downcycle plastic. So we are um, really of the opinion that we need to stop talking about recycling because that focuses us on the wrong end of the pipe, on the waste end. And instead, we need to look at the opportunities that will be created if we actually turn off the plastic tap. So exactly as you say, when Rishi Sunak starts to make noises about backtracking on EPR, extended res uh, producer responsibility, my heart sinks because 
we were getting this wonderful compound effect of the plastic tax, not a huge success, but it's there, it's something. Um, EPR, that's something that I think big corporations are really starting to be concerned about, as they should. The global treaty, all of these things compound up for suddenly the most subsidized material in the world, which is incredibly difficult to compete with on price and performance, suddenly doesn't look as attractive as it always was for industry. And we need to make sure that it isn't as attractive. So I can't really understand how, if you create, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. I come from the world of business. I used to make products. I always, I always say I used to sell stuff and now I sell change. But when we made stuff, and my background was skincare, massive plastic sinner, let me tell you. Um, but when we made that stuff, I had to have product liability. And I don't understand now that somehow we've disconnected the product that we sell, that we manufacture from the packaging that we sell it in. So we have product liability, and yet we don't have packaging liability. How bonkers is that? So I look at these things. I look at the fact that you get an oil spill, like the Valdez oil spill. Do you remember the ExxonMobil, huge oil spill? And we saw those images that were horrendous to look at, the black oil everywhere and the birds and everything. But we knew who to blame. We knew who had to take responsibility. We knew who had to go and pay the fines and clean it up. That was super clear to us. And I don't understand the difference between that scenario and let's just take a brand like Coca-Cola because they're the biggest plastic user and far and away the biggest polluter of the planet. You take a brand like Coca-Cola, who another form of fossil fuel pollution in the form of a plastic bottle, zero responsibility for the impact of the environment. And in fact, more than that, they often deflect that responsibility on you and me. If only we could train the consumer to put it in the right recycling bin. Again, perpetuating the myth that it's ever going to be recycled. Mm. And on that kind of the power, I guess, of these huge companies, and you, you mentioned about countries that are fossil fuel, big fossil fuel producers kind of potentially trying to interfere with negotiations. I just wondered what that actually looked like while you were in Paris. Like how, how were these countries kind of trying to interfere? In both ways, it was very clever and unbelievably um, shameless how obvious it was. So when you, when you want to take the floor, you take your, uh, it, in the treaty process, you, you hold up your country name thing. And you hold that up and you waggle it around a bit and then you're given the floor. And so the one bit that I witnessed was Saudi and holding it up, holding it up, waving it around. And then when the woman representing Saudi finally was given the floor by the chair, she went on for at least 10 minutes uh, about, I want to make a point of order that I've been waving my country flag and you haven't given me the floor and on and on and on. Unbelievably convincing. But halfway through the 10 minutes, I was on her side thinking, yeah, yeah, absolutely right. You should have your moment to have your say. It was at the end of 10 minutes, I realized there wasn't even a point that she wanted to make. It was such an overt delay tactic. So it's probably incredibly um, non-PC for me to say these things out loud on the podcast. But I, I think it's interesting that that uh, through the INC process, through any United Nations process, you have to suffer all of these things because that's democracy. And so it was good for me to see, well, that's democracy in action. However, what was wonderful was how when all of that delay happened, we the, the end result was still very positive. So I think it's just why it takes five days 
and not two days. Because in the world of business, you'd be tearing your hair out. Mm. And you mentioned that, you know, the, t- the timeline for this treaty is highly ambitious. What can we expect in the next round of negotiations? What's the timeline? We'll have an actual framework of the treaty wording itself. So this will be a very interesting point because then it's down to the detail of when we say it's legally binding, what does that mean? What, what international law will enforce this? What will the fines be? Uh, what will um, the relative responsibility be to countries that actually have most of the downside of plastic, which are largely the global south, compared to the countries that have had the benefit of plastic, which is largely the global north. So I think it's going to be uh, very interesting to see this initial framework. So that's what the negotiators are working on right now. And that will include people from every member state. So people from DEFRA in the UK will start to to work on the exact wording of the treaty. And that will be the negotiation then that starts to take place in November. And I know that, as you mentioned again, that the discussions around the chemical pollution from plastics is a big part of these negotiations and a big part of what you guys do at um, A Plastic Planet. So how do you think that the treaty can actually improve transparency around this, like in terms of just even knowing what, like just how harmful these pollutants in plastics are and what, yeah, what goes into them? It's been interesting us coming through the pandemic, don't you think, where suddenly plastic was the saviour for everything. Everything was suddenly single wrapped. Uh, you, know, you couldn't use a paper bag anymore. You had to use a plastic bag. It, it went absolutely flew in the face of all science where COVID actually lasted longer on plastic than it did on things like paper and glass and stainless steel. So it was fascinating to see, again, the power of the lobbying to reverse a lot of bans that were happening in the US around that time. I think very few people know just how many chemicals are used in the manufacture of plastic. We think it derives from fossil fuel polymers. It does. But then how do we make it so it's rigid and shiny or stretchy like cling film or something that you have in your yoga pants or any of those things or a fleece that you wear? You know, any of those things, it's a very different treatment to those fossil fuel polymers to give plastic its extraordinary qualities. It is a flipping miracle material. It's just that we've misused it. But the things that you add to plastic to give it those extraordinary qualities are a vast array of chemicals. 13,000 chemicals are used in the manufacture of plastic. Only 50% of them have ever been tested on the impact on human health. And we live in a world now where we are the first generation that die more from non-communicable diseases than from communicable diseases, which tells you our lifestyle is killing us now. And a large part of that is down to the chemicals that we pump out daily, the air pollution that we breathe in. And plastic is a major contributor to this. Every time you wear something that is is using a plastic fibre, it is shedding. We are breathing in our clothes. Every glass of water, this cup of mint tea, thank you, that you've given (laughs) me today, everything contains plastic. There is not an inch of the planet that we haven't infected, from the deep ice to the very depths of the Mariana Trench, you know, six miles down in the ocean, it is everywhere. We know it's through our entire food chain. And those chemicals are being carried by these little microplastics everywhere. And when we start to look at recycling as being part of the solution, 
the very, very simple way to say recycling is not the right answer, even if we had the infrastructure to do it. And even if you didn't downcycle plastic, you could make one bottle into another bottle very easily in a very um, energy efficient way, even if those things are okay. The reason that we shouldn't be recycling plastic is those chemicals don't disappear. In fact, the reverse, they compound up and we lose all traceability and accountability for those chemicals. So we need to be very careful when we're looking at recycled polymers. We need to be very careful on the chemicals that we add to plastics. I imagine we could make safe plastics, that we could take out a lot of the endocrine disrupting chemicals, which are the ones that we should really be concerned about, that impact fertility, heart disease, cognitive disorders, autoimmune disease, cancers. These are the things that that humankind is really suffering from right now. And the chemicals within plastic are a major contributor. This is not me saying this. This is the health scientists saying this. And we have to listen to them. We brought the health scientists to Brussels uh, early in February, and we held an event hosted by the MEPs in Brussels, which was really great to bring together industry, the scientists, the MEPs, the policymakers, to put them all in one room together And the message from the scientists was really stark. We have been bringing report after report after report for decades now to ring the alarm bell. It is five past midnight. We don't know what more we need to do. And all you will ever hear when you talk to industry is, yeah, we really need to know a bit more about whether inhaling a credit card's worth of plastic does us any harm at all when we know about the chemicals that it's carrying. We know already that it's in placenta. There is twice as much plastic in a baby poop as an adult poop. How can it be that a baby, when it's born, already has plastic inside it? We have to stop. Yeah, it's a really stark picture. And there definitely is that sense that the policy is lagging way behind the science. And I was just wondering what you think now that, um, like now after Brexit, how do you think UK policy is comparing to the EU? Do you think... You know, I know there's been some discussions around the fact whether we're kind of lagging behind, kind of trying to play catch up. Yeah, what what do you think? Very much lagging behind. If all we did was follow Europe, that would be extraordinary. I I held a little glimmer of hope when Brexit happened that maybe, maybe we would love to just prove to the EU that we could do even more in the environmental space. We could be more ambitious on plastic strategy, all of those things. That definitely hasn't happened. We have gone backwards. You mentioned DRS. The deposit return scheme is probably going to be out of date before it even gets introduced because we've been talking about it for so long and other systems changes are now being talked about and coming into play that I think will just replace the DRS. So we we are so slow on this. The EU are ahead of the rest of the world. Uh, America, for sure. The US is way behind and everybody in America, we work with big organizations like SAP and they will, they will all tell us that if you're a business in America, you say what's happening in the EU because you know what is happening in the EU. Apart from the fact everybody wants a global market, so you have to comply in the EU. You may as well comply globally. If it's happening in the EU, it's going to come to America and it'll be the same in the UK. So we might as well either be more ambitious than the EU, but at least step up to the same plate that they're on. Because no brand or business that wants to export to the EU can afford to not comply with the regulation in the EU. 
What I find fascinating in the EU um, particularly is how far ahead they are. So they are already looking at, this is not just, the plastic crisis for me has been, in, it's always been a gift, but it's been that little tap on the shoulder to say, hey, Nate, you, know, you have gone down the wrong road, humanity. You need to take a different road. This is a toxic cul-de-sac. And if you fix plastic, you will fix so much else. So the EU have taken this opportunity of thinking, this is not even just about swapping one material for another, a less bad material but still a single-use material. What the EU are focused on is, how do we eradicate single-use? How do we come up with a different system, a different way of living, where there is no waste? And I think that is laudable, that the the new legislation that they are looking to uh, apply and engage across the EU will be more draconian in many ways because it will try and eradicate single-use. Some countries are already ahead. France, amazing. They're doing things because I feel, I don't know, maybe the French are just more connected to nature and the food supply chain than we are. And so maybe they value the, the quality of the soil and, and the fact that you know, the degradation of the soil and the impact that's going to have on food supply. So they're keener to just be told, this is what we're going to do now. But in, in um, some supermarkets over there, already they're saying, if you're a supermarket in France of a certain size, 20% of your floor space has to be given over to refill solutions. So they're already so far ahead of even the EU. So we have to applaud them. Amazing. And on this note, just as a final question, if you were in charge of waste policy at DEFRA, what, what would you do? What would be your first, first decision? I'd seriously question why we have normalised waste. We are the only species on the planet that creates waste. Nature, there is no waste. Everything, we, we talk about the circular economy like it's something we've invented. It, this is not something that Ellen MacArthur Foundation came up with or some McKinsey think tank. You know, the nature is fully circular. Everything is the nutrient. Every bit of waste is the nutrient for the next stage of growth. And that's the circularity that we need to tap into. So if I were in charge of waste, first I would question why it's so normal. Why is it okay for us to give back the billions of tons of waste every single year? And it's very symptomatic uh, for me of how a society deals with, her, with their waste says a lot about that society. How we deal with our waste in the UK, the amount we export, I think is shameful. It says a lot about us and the fact that we believe it's okay to do that. I think we, we also have to address the amount of resource we take from nature in the first place. It's all connected to waste because plastic really was the material that enabled us to break the system and create this huge volume of waste now because it broke the system that only one generation ago was completely normal. Take from nature, make something useful for us, repair it, refill it, share it, rent it, reuse it in some way. And now it's take, make, chuck it in a bin for that mythical recycling ferry to use. So I think it would be really good for us to seriously address the amount of resource we take. In the last six years, we have taken more resource from the planet than in the entire 20th century. So World Overshoot Day that I'm sure you'll be well familiar with, that day tells us that anything beyond, and I think it's July something this year, anything beyond that, we are taking the resources from our children's future, making stuff with them, selling them today and calling it GDP. 
So I think if you are head of waste, you've got an enormous opportunity and responsibility to not just think, how can we recycle more, but how can we dramatically reduce the amount of waste that we create? Because if we do that, the impact that we will have on the climate crisis will be disproportionate as well. Amazing. Thank you so much. It's been a fascinating, fascinating conversation. Thank you. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Eco Chamber. Thank you to Tess Colley, Pippa Neal and Sean Sutherland. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please head over to endreport.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you again next time.